Hey everyone, it's Madison. I just want to remind you all that the anoli or reptile-based questions uh, can still be answered and filled out until February 20th. So please, if you get a chance to fill that out, we'd really appreciate that. And we cannot wait to answer all of your questions. Uh, enjoy today's episode. Thanks. Coming to you live from a radio tower near you, studying the intersections of video games and science. This is Pokey Science. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Poke Science. This is Sassy here as your fearless co-host for the day. And I am joined by my other co-hosts, Ray. Hi, everyone. And Jared. Hey, y'all. And super exciting. We have a very special guest, Dr. Olivier Morissette. Hi, Sassy. Hi, ho. <laughs> Thanks, Olivier. We are here to talk about invasive species and invasive species in the Pokemon world. But before we get started and before I let Olivier give a full introduction of himself, I want to talk about a little bit of background information on invasive species, some of the terms that we're going to be using during this episode, what they mean and how they're different from each other. So we all have same understanding of what the words are that we're using. So I'm going to start with a term that you're going to be hearing a lot throughout the next hour or so, and that is non-local beings. So non-local beings are species that occur somewhere other than where they are naturally found. So the term non-local being originated with indigenous peoples to pay respect to the life of these species and frame their existence more accurately. This term and its underlying meaning have been adopted by some Western scientists to replace some previously used less accurate and less appropriate terms. And we are actively advocated for non-local being to be the primary term used by all Western scientists. I was taught this phrase by the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, and I remain super grateful for the opportunities to continue to grow and learn beyond the confines of the Western science that I was taught. All right, so moving on to our next term, the title of this episode, invasive species. So an invasive species is a non-local being that causes some kind of problem in its new environment. So these problems can be ecological, economic, or human health-based. It's important to know that invasive species don't change their behavior or biology to become invasive, uh, but rather that those traits that were advantageous and helped them fit into their local ecosystem don't necessarily make them a good fit for a new location. So in North America, we usually hear this term invasive species that refers to non-local beings that are destructive or a nuisance to the local environment or the people in that area. The phrase, like I said, we're going to be using this throughout the episode, but I do still want to emphasize that this phrasing has its own history and implications. Finally, most important, I think, to know in sort of the clarification in the context of today is that most non-local beings do not become invasive in a new environment. So I work in the Great Lakes. In the Great Lakes, there are over 180 recorded non-local beings, but less than 40 of those species could be considered invasive, and that's just on the aquatic side. So the odds that a species is going to be introduced and is not going to cause significant harm is much higher than the other alternative where they become invasive. So I am really happy to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Olivier Morissette. Olivier is a professor and researcher at the University of Quebec in Chicoutimi and a co-host of the French language podcast A equals RJ2 about Tintin and other French comics. But today we're here to talk Pokemon and not comics and specifically invasive Pokemon. So back to Olivier. Tell us who are you and what is your invasive species background? Yep. Uh, thank you, Ceci. Uh, so uh, as you said, I'm a, I'm a professor. Um, 
at the University uh, of, of Quebec in Chicoutimi. But uh, before that, um, I was um, working for the government where, where we met uh, the government of Quebec. Um, I was responsible of the national program of, of Quebec on aquatic invasive species. So uh, my work was uh, to... Um, you know, design monitoring program, uh, trying to to have uh, outreach material, trying to to pass message to to people about uh, prevention and, and how to to avoid um, new introductions or or spreading invaders that are already already present in in, in the territory. So um, that was my work. Uh, I did that for for many many years. Uh, and before that, I was I did my my PhD uh, in Quebec at uh, the Université Laval. Uh, I was working on uh, fish, uh, mostly uh, ecology of, of lake trout, and and um, yeah, the impact and, and ecological and, and genetic impact of of stocking in in lake trout was quite far from invasive species. It's really when working with the government that I, I made all my, my experience about invasive species, mostly uh, in the water. And now that I'm back in academia, uh, it's been since June, since last June, so it's been a couple of months. I'm back in Chicoutimi uh, in academia and I I still have some, some project uh, on invasive species and it's still a part of my, my research program to... to uh, study a different aspect of invasive species, mostly the link between um, habitats and, and, and different environmental conditions and, and the performance or, or prevalence of, of invasive species in those habitats. Thanks. And that's why I was really excited to have you join us today, because you're one of the, I think, rare people in our field who have experience both on the management side and working for a government agency and you know, what goes into those types of programs and that type of work. And then also, you know, as you were just saying, the academic side of the research and lab work and, you know, making new advances in frontiers and invasive species research. So I'm super excited that you have both of those sides and that we get to talk about both of those today. Thank you. And I, yeah, I, as I said, we, we talked before that the, the, regarding the episodes, I, I've, I've been very involved in, in Pokemon before. I've played when I had my Game Boy Colors and, and, and on Pokemon Red and Gold, but I'm still quite aware of the Pokemon world, so it's kind of interesting to mix those those two things to, together uh, tonight. Can you tell us what are some of the traits that can make a species become invasive in a new environment? Yep. Uh, you know, when, when we talk about invasive species, one, one of the things that uh, many people will talk about is this um, invasiveness capacity. So invasiveness, uh, there's different definition about about this, but I will summarize it by by saying this is species that can is able to to colonize a, a new place, establish. So establishment is is often defined as the, the capacity to have a, a self-sustaining populations. So you see being able, able to complete life cycles and reproduce in, in a given region, but after that also disperse uh, from this original point of introductions. So as you said, there's there's many, many non-local beings that, that will not end up invasive in a, in a region. So what was the difference between those are war invaders and, and those who don't? Uh, it's still a th 
tricky question, in fact, for for the science of, of of invasion. But we we know for sure that probably fecundity, so high high fecundity, the um, like kind of uh, flexibility in in, in terms of 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 feeding and and uh, um, capacity to cope with uh, a large uh, scope of of. Uh, uh, environmental conditions; those are traits that that will f- probably facilitate um, the invasion of a of, of a new region. And fecundity—that's the ability to reproduce. We've been talking a little vaguely about non-local beings or invasive species, and I want to ask you: what are some of what are some real-world examples that you have of uh, non-local species, specifically animals and plants? Give our plant relatives some some time to shine and. Kind of why are they concerns to the communities in the area that they're in right now? Yeah, sure. One species that that come to mind uh, in terms of invasive species is the the, the zebra mussels. So, so uh, and it's it's uh, the other species that is really really similar to the quagga mussels. So those those two mussels are are really established uh, around the Great Lake, uh, but also in the in the Saint Lawrence River in Quebec. Uh, we see them uh, in in large abundance. Uh, those are uh, a small mollusk. Uh, they can filter the the water columns. So um, and and they have this ability to to uh, establish settle on on every hard surface. So uh, think about rocks, uh, piers, but also pipes. So uh, and that's one of the the negative impact of of the species. It can uh, clog every water pipes uh, that that touch the water. So you know those little uh, floating larvae. They they can they will float uh, at the beginning of their life and eventually settle on those hard surface and and become an ad, uh, an adult uh, mussels. And and you, you can imagine those thick layer of of muscle that can easily um, clog a pipe, but also uh, have many, many negative consequences uh, for people um, and and also other animals like native mussels that can uh, be um, negatively impacted by by zebra mussels. But there's also invasive fish. Uh, You may uh, know the the four different uh, invasive carps uh, species. Uh, and and when you talk about this, people always always uh, want to ask you, uh, is this the one that 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 jump? Uh, yes, <laughs> the silver carp is the one who who's jump jumping uh, when when the, a boat arrive uh, near near them. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about invasive carp later with match carp. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about local ranges and obviously part of how a species becomes invasive is when it leaves that range and goes somewhere else. So can you tell us a little bit about how invasive species might move to a new place? Yeah, sure. And and uh, the easy answer of, uh, of that is because of humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are generally involved in this this movement to a new place. But uh, yeah, if we tell, if we talk about specific ways of of uh, new introduction, I, I think um, following up with with zebra mussel, we can talk about ballast waters. So uh, those water transported by uh, the big international uh, ships that are uh, traveling the world, traveling the, the globes, and um, you know the 
this water can be a pump uh, in, in a given port and uh, the, imagine the ship uh, traveling by, by the ocean, arriving to new ports and, and having to release this water in, the, in those big containers and uh, at the bottom of the, of the boat of the ship. And if there's some living species in those in that water, they will uh, be able to to be released in this new port. And and if uh, it's a place that where the, the species can can live and, and, and prosper, could be um, a new introductions. So and that's one of the main vector of introduction that 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 the, the Great Lake have have suffered, uh, let's say, um, in the in the last decades and and. Um, we, we've seen that ballast water was m- one of the main vectors. But a part of this, uh, you know, uh, species can travel in, in, uh, in shipping or so in, in merchandise that have been shipped, uh, are shipped uh, by, by mail or by plane. Uh, pet can be released too in, in, in the wild and, and some of those pets can, be, can become invasive. And um, also human have... have modified the the landscape so uh imagine all those those canals that that are connecting waters that were were not connected before so imagine the panama canal but also um all the canals around the great lake that have uh, may, uh species have used as way to travel to to new uh to new places and and that was also an important vector of of, of transport or, or introduction of species uh, invasive species um in in the history yeah i mean talking about the modification of the landscape one of the big impacts, at least on the aquatic side, is that the Chicago River, so that's a a natural occurring river that connects Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River, that river, the flow is actually reversed. So, you know, naturally that water is supposed to flow from the Mississippi into Lake Michigan, and that flow has actually been reversed. So it flows out of Lake Michigan towards the Mississippi. So there's now this connection that's not normally supposed to exists there and that's one of the like big issues for like the spread of of species from the Mississippi River into the Great Lakes and vice versa. Yeah, sure. That that's what's one uh that's been um instrumental in in the revival of 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 many species and it's still um one place where where the, a lot of resources are are invested right right now to to prevent the the arrival of the invasive carps. Well, this takes us perfectly into our next question. So what happens when a new invasive species is found somewhere? So maybe it's only a couple of individuals. It's, you know, not been recorded there before. What does that process look like? Yeah. Um, as you said, at first, we, we see a couple of individuals or, or sometimes we we detect the species much later in the, the invasion uh, cycle or, or and, and the species is already very, very abundant. So it's, it's very depending of, of the different situations. But um, let's, let's say a, a given uh, species is detected. Uh, it will raise awareness uh, with for, for the government, from from the, the people uh, at at this place seeing this new species, and there will always be this questioning phase where where we don't know if 
if uh, it's a big deal, is there uh, will there be negative consequences? Uh, we, we still don't know. We have to monitor this. The precautionary approach will will dictate that uh, we should think that the negative impact are, are possible. So um, there will be different reaction, very depending on on what's the species, was was the the region, is it a, is it a terrestrial species or, or an aquatic species? Can we can we confine uh, the species in a given region to to be sure it, it will not spread, or or is it already uh, quote uh, too late or or uh, very very uh, spread already? Now that we've kind of talked about like what uh, invasive species is, how they come to a new place, what do we do if we find them? How do we go about controlling them? As I know, for most people that are listening. They'll probably first think of stuff that grows in their lawn. So they'll think of probably things like glyphosate or like, which is Roundup or the good old hand pulling things out of the lawn or uh, mowing it. But what con- types of control are there for these invasive species? Again, it's, it's, I think, a question of scale. As you said, on, on your lawn, it can be an, an actual achievable task to control uh, a couple of weeds uh, species that 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 you don't want there and you will be able to repeat this this control year after year if you want if you want to have a, a lawn uh, devoid of, of weeds by example but if you think about the larger systems um, um, and ecosystems uh, or Let's say you, you are manager of a park and you don't want to have this species in, in, in your park. Um, the task will be very, very different and will involve um, uh, resources that are, are quite expensive. Or, um, so you will need to have a tool. By example, you said here uh, a pesticide for, for a weed. And there is tool existing for a, a couple of species. Um, for for example, the CDM pre have this this lampricide, so which is a um, a poison that that they use to uh, kill the the larvae of lamprey. Those, those larvae are, are living in the sediment of the smaller tri- tributaries and and a smaller river, and you can use this to to kill uh, uh, the, the young lamprey. It's quite effective. It's need that you need an extensive resource to do that, but it's the it had its results. But sadly, in, in most of the case, it's, it's quite difficult to have a, an effective control that, that can be viable in, in time. So, um, yeah, and sadly, in some instance, there, there's um, not much control that can be done. But um, that, that's why I think many managers try to, to work on prevention of human production more than they don't want to... to uh, to go to control because they know how difficult it could be. But as as I said, really depending on the scales, and, and it's possible in, in some smaller uh, place that, that you can have an effective control and have um, um, positive uh, effect of, of this control. That leads into my uh, follow-up question, which was what are some of the proactive ways that community mem- communities or community members or even government agencies are doing to prevent non-local beings from getting into these areas? I'm from like a very uh, freshwater lakes area, so I know like what we do, but I'm interested to see what you see as well. 
there, there's many tools that, that managers can use. You know, uh, regulation is one. So you can have, uh, by example, prohibited species you don't want to have on your uh, in, in your legislation. So you can uh, prohibit their their uh, market. Uh, you can prohibit the, the, the to, to process one. So it, it could be um, a thing you can do. Um, there is some activities that are more at risk to have uh, to lead to a new introduction. So, by example, you talk about freshwater lakes uh, here in Quebec. Uh, bait fish, uh, alive bait fish, are are prohibited. Uh, it's been a couple of years that uh, there's a complete complete uh, prohibition for for the province uh, because um, the government. Um, um, decided that this activities was too at risk to 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 uh, lead to new introductions so uh, they had to to prohibit the activity completely and uh i, I after this one of the 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 main but uh, one of the the action that is i think really valuable to do is educations so you can educate people to 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 let them know that there is risk uh, linked to different species or different activities. Uh, you can also um, educate them to recognize um, um, an invasive species and, and what's, which species is, is, is local, which uh, species is um, invasive. And, and also what's, what's the, the good way to, to do an activity that can be linked to a risk, for example, how to clean your boat and, and uh, what's, what can be done to avoid introducing a new species when, when you do your, your favorite activities. What happens if your proactive doesn't work and you have to go more into like a management plan for control? How do you go about like making a management plan, implementing a management plan? Because... You have to use multiple control methods because not one method is just going to work all the time. Yep, um, you. I, I think one of the the, the key thing about this is um, to think about the, the the people and the different stakeholders also around the in, in the place you want to implement this control. Um, by example, if you if you want to to use herbicides, you have also to have a clear idea on on what could be the negative impact of of this is there water sources that are used to a community by example and and uh, is there resources also to to do this this control the management control in in a given place so um this is the first thing to to have a clear understanding on on what you can do and what you can't and after that trying to to find as you said complementary approach to, to have um, um, a reasonable uh, expectation to, to have an impact when, when, when this control will take place. And sometimes there's, there's one tool and, and it, it will be enough. By example, for fish, uh, you can re- use rotenone in, in some uh, smaller place, smaller lakes. And if, if done correctly, you will have an impact. You will have a, a success. But... You will have to control all the the different variables to, to be sure to have uh, this tangible impact. So now that we've talked about examples in the real world of invasive species, how do we control them? What they are? How they come about to be? Let's talk about everyone's favorite thing, Pokemon. Pokemon. So, <laughs> Pokemon. That's why we're all here, right? That's why we're so, here. So, so the most important question I can ever ask: 
is which Pokemon do you think are invasive? I thought about this uh, about other Pokemon that that can be in, invasive, and um, I was kind of leaning toward uh, mollusk-like Pokemon. I was thinking about the zebra mussel, and and I was yeah wondering if if Shelter will will be an, an interesting invasive Pokemon. On top of that, uh, you know, uh, and and I, I had to to return to my uh, Pokemon knowledge, but. Shelders is is a Pokemon that that can bite the 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 slowpoke tails. Yes, and, and, yes, and, and they become you know slowbro, and and after that yes. the, the other evolution, and the, it's it's kind of written in the Pokedex that that Shelder in, inject a kind of toxin to to control or or improve the mind of of slowpoke, and and it become more intelligent, and 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 uh, and that's why they they become they become slow king and i was wondering if shelter is elsewhere in in the pokemon world and this toxin is injected in other pokemon i think it, it, there's there's a potential to wreck as you said ceci wreck a vac others pokemon by injecting a mind controlling toxins uh, in blood of other Pokemons. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about. And it took until, what, Generation 8 in Galar for us to get a, a poison psychic version. So those toxins are finally at play. I said, so like talking about that impact of like what the shelter causing the issues with the Slowbro, what impacts do you think invasive Pokemon have? Yeah, I, I think there, there could be an impact. And I was reflecting on the, you know, there's. It seems that some Pokemon's are, are more rare. We know this, but or some needs um, particular conditions to 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 live. But by, by example, uh, you know the Safari Zones is is the that preserve zone of of where where you can find Kangaskhans and and other Pokemon stuff. So it's kind of suggesting does that that some Pokemon are, are more fragile than than others. So and and more subject to to negative impact so i was i was wondering if uh you know you have a one pokemon who become really really abundant and and it could probably lead to decline of of, of another species or or even disappearance of, of a species extinction uh, have happened uh, before in the pokemon world oh yeah maybe that explains what happened between hisui and Sinnoh. okay so I think we're going to do some rapid fire Pokemon that are based on real world species that are invasive. I have to start with my favorite, my sweet, sweet boy, Corefish, which Olivier is crayfish. That's red. Um, and I believe it was introduced in Hoenn in Gen 3. Is that right, Ray and Jared? Yes. Yep. With Crawdot, both inter- yes. introduced in Hoenn. Yes. One of Corefish's uh, Pokedex entries calls it a hardy creature that is able to live in polluted water and will eat nearly everything. And it specifically notes that they're not local to Alola and that they were set free by trainers there. So I am thinking based on the uh, appearance in some of these uh, Pokedex entries that this guy is based on the Red Swamp Crayfish, who is one of my absolute favorites. There are some amazing pictures on the internet of Red Swamp Crayfish just holding their claws up like, fight me, bro, and it's incredible. <laughs> They're uh, the species that you eat in a crawfish boil. Fun fact, if you didn't know that. As you said, it's one of those uh, invasive 
crayfish. There's a couple of, of crayfish in, uh, that are invasive, but the, the red swamp is is interesting with its its bright uh, color and and uh, it's, it's quite remarkable in, in terms of crayfish. <laughs> and um, uh, as yeah, as the the other uh, invasive crayfish, uh, we know that though those are um, quite territorial species and they have uh, those different impacts on on uh, other uh, local crayfish, but also on on. Uh, on plants, they can feed on plant or, or or cut the plants, and and it will lead to to a decrease of of quality of habitats. Many crayfish species are, are also uh, burrowers, so you know they dig the, the sediment, they dig also in uh, around the, the lakes, and and it can lead to quite nasty uh, impact on the on the quality of the habitats. One uh, Pokemon I wanted to bring up was Meowth. So as you remember, Meowth's one of the original Pokemon, but in later versions, we've gotten variations from them. So kind of going back to the Alolan region, we see in the Pokemon Dex entry for Sun is that this Pokemon was not originally found in Alola. Human actions caused a surge in their numbers and they went feral. They're prideful and crafty. And I think the direct relation to this is kind of seeing, oh, I'm going to get some hate for this, seeing cats as invasive species. And what are your uh, thoughts and perspectives on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, an, an interesting uh, relationship. Uh, those those domestic species that, that we have as pets, uh, yeah, they can certainly have negative consequences on on when they're re- they are released and uh cat is a good example uh, sadly um cat will have um, non-negligible impacts in in our cities uh in the, um, also um, in the wild they can, they can they can live they can prosper and, and uh you know they, they feed on on rodents on birds and certainly they can they can have an impact and in hope in Hawaii, they have they're having a huge impact right now, correct? With all mm-hmm. the with the amount of cats on the islands and the amount of uh, different species there, bird species and others that are getting lost. Uh-huh, or, uh huh. Sure. And 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 islands in in general are interesting systems for for uh, invasive species, as uh, you know the those. Uh, restricted uh, fauna and 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 biota. They sometimes they are naive to to those new predators, and and they are they have evolved those pretty specific uh, trophic networks where where uh, uh, for example the predators or even uh, a non predator uh, species can can really have uh, important uh, consequences. According to the American Bird Conservancy, they've contributed to the extinction of 63 different species of birds, mammals, and reptiles like worldwide, which is just absolutely astonishing to me. I mean, talking about like Pokemon going extinct or, or changing between Hisui and Sinnoh or what some of those potential impacts would be, like that is absolutely a, an astonishing number. 63 species because of cats. There's certainly ways to to have uh, more responsible owners and and decrease those uh, those impacts. Keep your cats indoors, people. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they, they like it. I'm sure they they like it indoors. <laughs> I had Beedrill. We got to hear about them a lot on the West Coast um, in Washington in 2019. The lovely northern giant hornets. The media called the murder hornets because of their ability to kill. Um, 
honeybees and other bee colonies. They actually, in the end, by the sounds of it, did come invasive because they haven't found any of them since 2022. There wasn't any that they could find in Washington, so... Another really good example of media coverage of invasive species. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, speaking of this, uh, we have, um, I think, a couple of, of um, uh, those, those ornaments uh, seen in BC, so in British Columbia and in Canada. And, and uh, again, the, the treatment from, from media was sometimes not so good, I, I, w- I would say. And um, we, we have, and I remember this, government and agencies have to to warn people and, and remind them what's what's an ornet what's a bumblebee uh, we, we've seen so many people trying to kill bumblebees this this summer uh we, we saw a couple of ornets so yeah. sad yeah that's exactly like what you were saying earlier about the importance of education yeah being able to to recognize the 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 invaders and and, and also recognize the the local one uh, that that you should protect <laughs> So we've kind of talked about kind of the reasonable ways that Pokemon could get to different areas within the different regions. But now we're going to jump into the more extreme version that we see in the video games and in the anime of non-local Pokemon coming to an area and specifically talking about outer space with Deoxys or different dimensions like the Ultra Beasts. Both times we see local Pokemon reacting to or trying to remove these mons. So I think that's an interesting thing we can touch on. But yeah, there's the Ultra Beasts, for example, are almost blatantly referred to as invasive species, like generally within the Pokemon community. Uh, Nihilego is just based off its appearance, looks like a kind of like a jellyfish. And I think it's influenced by um, a punctata species of jellyfish, which is invasive in um, water surrounding Hawaii. And then also Buzzwall is supposed to be influenced by a mosquito and a pretty ubiquitous ubiquitously invasive one throughout the world interesting and those are are if i'm correct from another dimension is it yes yep it's like a little wormhole that opens up that they that they come through happily we don't have to deal with this right now in terms of (laughs) this is audible gasp i I appreciate that you said right now (laughs) oh yeah i i don't i'm I'm, i don't know what the what the future is made of but (laughs) Yeah, those are they're really interesting ones, I think, to analyze because in the games you are sent in to like help get rid of them. And they're even strong reactions from the uh, I forget what they're called, the um, guardian deities that try and like get rid of oh, the, the tapus. Yeah. And so it's like a really interesting example of like the real world mimicking or the Pokemon games mimicking the real world where like, oh, these things are here. We have to get rid of them and they're super powered. And the same thing applies to uh, Deoxys where it comes through space and Rayquaza is just always trying to destroy Deoxys. So, <laughs> yeah, it's what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, that, that that's interesting. And yeah, it's sometimes the, the the reaction we have from from the public you know this there is this new species and then they want to to destroy it and they want to contribute and and, and sometimes you know they they want to hunt or or, or fish the, the, the species to to get rid of them and it's it's all from good intentions i think but sometimes it will not provide the the um the results we expect and i think um Wild wild boar is, is is a good example of uh, there's many states and, and province where uh, it's kind of invasive, 
And uh, we know that it's kind of an intelligent species. They live in in, in small groups, a really structured group. And and um, if not done correctly, by example, if if hunters, uh, non-experimented hunters, try to to get rid of a of a group of of wild boars, they will learn to avoid humans, and and uh, they will sometimes be more nocturnal than than normally to to try to avoid humans, and 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 they will spread even more. Well, one thing that's really interesting here that I think we're starting to also see a little bit of in when it comes to invasive species management in the real world is this concept of the local Pokemon reacting to eliminate or remove these, you know, invasive species from outer space. And one of the things that we've started talking about in the Great Lakes region is utilizing some of our local species like water lilies or sacred lotus. And these are, are, are species that float on the surface of the water. And so they create, you know, shade underneath their leaves and using that as a way to, you know, sort of control or manage those species that live primarily under the water. So instead of using herbicides or some other type of chemicals, using the species that are local to the area and as almost a, an avenue of control, and then sort of reseeding almost with species that are adapted to the local area because they're local to the area and are able to live with those floating emergence. So that's something that's really interesting in concept to think about, especially since it's starting to happen in the real world. Yeah, sure, and and also this uh, this is a good example, and you know all the the the, ref, the the reflection about how we can use habitat restoration to have those those uh, more high quality habitats where maybe uh, invasive species can have less of an impact compared to to uh, degraded habitats where where uh, sometimes the they they can take up all the place because it's degraded because there is less local species than in in those uh, high quality habitats so and there's just this idea that uh, eradication is a thing but also functional eradication is a thing too where you can lower the abundance of a of an invasive just enough to uh, limit all the the major negative impacts so you you will not get rid of it completely this is a very daunting task but you can decrease the abundance just enough to uh, restore a kind of balance in the habitats. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and start talking about some of the mechanics in the games that might influence how we think about invasive Pokemon. So as you know, in the games, uh, for Pokemon that a trainer catches but doesn't necessarily want to use on their team, the options are to either leave that Pokemon in your PC boxes where they enjoy a lovely little cafe experience, I'm sure, or to release them. So what are the problems with releasing Pokemon and what other options should a trainer have in the games? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and I, I, as soon as you contacted me about this episode, I was thinking about releasing uh, Pokemon from, from the PC and and I was wondering where they where will they go? So <laughs> do do the PC have uh, an ability to restore the Pokemon its in its local habitats, or will it be released at the nearest Pokemon Center? <laughs> that that could be a, a very deciding factors about uh, how to release the Pokemon. Yeah, I guess I hadn't even thought about the chance that maybe there's like a 
PC courier service where if you're like, hey, I don't want this Rattata anymore, they'll actually take it back to where you caught it. And I, I'm under the impression that this is not the thing because we, we have those examples of, of by example, Rattatas that are, are present in the Hawaii, uh, Halloland uh, Islands. So I think they are just releasing uh, where 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 the PC are. I don't know. It's and it's that's kind of puzzling for me. And and most evidently, um, releasing and and a Pokemon should be done in its local habitats. I would say. But other than this, I think and and I think this this where you you it should go. Uh, maybe that this Pokemon you don't want anymore. You can trade it. Or, or give it to a friend that will take care of it more uh, and, and enjoy its, its company. So, and it's kind of the same thing in the real world when, when you have this this fish, by example, you don't want anymore, you can uh, give it to a, a friend or, 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 or a pet shop to, to sell it uh, to someone else who will take care of it. This makes me think, what are y'all's thoughts on there being a finite uh, amount of um, X pokemon in a game like we talk about uh releasing pokemon but then also trying to catch them and we find them in certain areas but what if there are only like five thousand rattatas in a game or only five laprises or something like that i think that the community would be very upset with uh it being too realistic yeah that that we never we never see a Pokemon stop appearing within the games at a certain point. Does that make sense? The only exception yeah. being the the legendaries or the the ones where like there's only one of them. Uh-huh. And it's just like an interesting concept where I'm like where you can't really see the effects of like what the game's trying to trying to do by saying like oh these are like non-local, potentially invasive and destructive, but like we never actually see the fallout of that. Yeah, that makes me think of Another mechanic that's present in some of the later games. So, Olivier, there are uh, what's called Pokemon Swarms. So these are for like a limited period of time. Certain Pokemon will become a lot more common in a certain area. And I think in some games, I'm not certain if it's in all games, but it's actually to the detriment of other Pokemon in the area. So like if you think about your carrying capacity is 100 Pokemon and there's normally 20 of a certain one you know, so 20% incidence rate, then now all of a sudden there's 80 of them. The other Pokemon in the area become a lot more difficult to find. I don't think that's true in all of the games, but I do think that's true in some of them. So, but these swarms happened for such a limited period of time that it reminded me of like sort of population boom and bust cycles. And so I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, does that happen in the real world with invasive species populations? How does that work? Yeah, that that's an an, an interesting concept. Uh, it's it's been debated a lot, but uh, I think there is solid evidence that uh, boom bust can can happen. This is an as you said, really similar in in kind of of um, of mechanisms where uh, an invasive species when it's arriving in this new habitats, sometimes they are in this exponential growth phase where uh, they are reproducing a lot. And, and we see them uh, increasing in, in number really, really rapidly. And at some point, they kind of, um, um, yeah, go over the, the, the carrying capacity of, of the habitats. And after this, when we, uh, when the, 
the species will probably uh, experiment kind of a de- density dependent uh, phenomenon where there will be not enough resources uh, for the um, uh, for the species to survive and then to uh, growth at, at the same at the same rate. So eventually we, we will see decrease of abundance to a level that is uh, lesser than the, than the maximum we've seen in this in this boom. And that's and that's the bust of of this phase. Yeah, you will see really sharp decrease where the species will will become uh, really low abundance, or sometimes just um, um, a return to an intermediate level of abundance of, of the species. And it's not uh, it's not a one time deal. Sometimes you you will see a, a, a multiple boom and bust uh, for 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 a population. Thank you so much, Olivier, for joining us for this conversation today. I am going to wrap us up. I'm going to end with, uh, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, after listening to this episode and learning a little bit more about invasive species and your favorite Pokemon, what can you do? What is there to be done about invasive species? And one of the great things that we've talked about, you know, extensively throughout this episode is that there are meaningful ways that we can help to prevent new introductions. As we've mentioned, a lot of species are moved around and introduced to new areas because of the movements and actions of humans, of us. So to do your part to prevent those introductions, you can make sure every time you go outside, especially when you're spending time in natural areas, like when you're hiking or canoeing or fishing or anything like that, Always clean your gear, so make sure that there's no mud on them, there's no plant fragments, whatever. If you clean anything off of your gear, make sure that you dispose of it in the trash. Don't just leave it on the side of a trail or something. If you're doing anything in the water, make sure that you drain all of the water from like your boat or your jet skis, or you're not potentially moving around water that has the larvae of some of those zebra mussels that we were talking about or other small microscopic species. And always make sure that after you've cleaned everything, it's fully dry before you use it again in another location. And this extends to your pets. So if you take your pet out for walks or hikes in natural areas, make sure that you're brushing them to make sure there's no seeds or fur or burrs or mud stuck, clean their paws, things like that. With any pet, really, never let them go free outside. Always keep them on a leash, especially don't release them if you don't want a pet anymore, you can't care for it. Always try to rehome them by giving them to a friend or to a humane society. And as Olivier mentioned, some pet stores will even take your pet back and take care of them and and sell them to a new potential owner. You can find Olivier on his French language podcast, A equals RJ2. And on Twitter, he posts amazing, incredible art. What is your Twitter handle? Where can they find your art? Yeah, it's uh, O Morissette. Thank you all for joining us and we'll catch you next week.